Welcome everyone. The reading today comes from Psalm 116, verses 1 to 19. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted in the Lord when I said, I'm greatly afflicted. In my alarm, I said, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you, whether you're joining us online or whether you're here live. It's encouraging to be together as a family this morning. I was moved uh, about a week before last as I was watching Ando's Brush with Fame. Do you know the show? It's on ABC iView. It's where the famous comedian Ando uh, interviews a famous individual while he paints a portrait of them. And a couple of weeks ago, it was the episode featured the young Sophie Delizio, uh, who was the young Australian who was severely injured in two traffic accidents when she was young. Uh, she was badly injured when a car crashed into her daycare centre and caught fire as she was trapped underneath. Uh, she suffered third-degree burns to 85% of her body, was hospitalised for several months. Uh, she lost both of her feet, a number of fingers and an ear. Uh, but then she was involved in a second serious car accident a couple of years later in 2006 when she was being pushed in her wheelchair across a pedestrian crossing and was hit by a car and thrown some 18 metres down the road. She suffered a heart attack, a broken jaw, a broken shoulder, bruising to her head, numerous rib fractures and a tear to her left lung. Two life-threatening experiences, um, you know, just years apart when she's two years old and then later when she was five. And here she was, 18 years old, on this program with Ando, and you couldn't wipe the smile off her face. She had this huge, beaming smile. She has these bright blue, optimistic eyes. And she was described as making the most of her life. 
One of the things that comes up in the interview is that while she spent some months at Westmead Hospital while she was there, the doctors gave her parents the option of turning off the life support. Things were that bad. Um, and Arne and Sophie reflect in the interview that actually her positivity to life, her excitement about life, uh, her interest in making the world a better place, her desire to be a better person, to spread joy and things like that, all come back to this decision that her parents made not to turn off the life support. From that choice comes her positivity, her excited approach to life. She lives in response to that decision. She's aware of just how precious her life is and how loved she is, how compassionate her parents were in her situation. When I listen to a story like this, when I watch a story like that, I often think, gee, I want that kind of attitude and that resolve in my own life. You know, I want that, that, that light to my own eyes and how I live. The other thought I often have is, do I need to have a near-death experience to live a life like that? This psalm is a, a personal response of thankfulness to God for being rescued from death. And it shows us God's personal compassion for the helpless. And it also shows us how God's compassion can change a person to live a new life. And so as we look at this psalm together, Psalm 116, and I hope you've got it at home in your Bibles. I hope you've got it on your app, on your phone here this morning or in your Bible that you brought. Uh, let's pray as we listen to God's word this morning. Our Heavenly Father. Help us to be moved by your compassion for us. Help us to see your compassion for us in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And help us to be changed by your compassion continually in our lives. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the first striking things we notice in this psalm is just how personal it is. Uh, you may have noticed... Uh, this psalm is one of six psalms that are called the Egyptian Hillel or the Egyptian Praise. And basically they're psalms that the Jewish people would have used to celebrate Passover, to celebrate their uh, remembering their release from captivity in Egypt. And so they'd be sung every year at this annual festival. And all of those psalms would have been sung uh, corporately, together, everybody together, publicly, in a big room or outside, with friends, in living rooms. They would have been sung together. Uh, their language is very corporate. It's very us. It's about Israel. It's about the big story that's going on. Uh, I can give you some examples. Psalm 113 is, Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, Israel became God's dominion. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all you nations, all you peoples. Let Israel say, Psalm 118, his love endures forever. But right in the middle of those six psalms, we have this psalm. And you may have noticed, but what is so unique and different about this psalm is that it's so personal. Nearly every sentence has the word I or me in it. It's about a person speaking about their personal experience. Nearly every sentence has uh, the Lord. It has the personal name of God, Yahweh. For us, it's translated as Lord. But it's this very personal psalm. In fact, the first words of this psalm uh, 
are most telling. Have a look at them if you've got them. It just says simply, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. It's so personal. It's this exclamation of adoration. It's a personal story of personal remembered anguish, of personal remembered compassion, of personal deliverance from death, of personal thankfulness, personal commitment, personal love. And there's something that is for us this morning in this that we need to hear, that the psalmist is perhaps communicating to the people as they're gathered, and that is this, that individuals are passionate about God. Individuals love God. Individuals care for God. Individuals have a passionate relationship for God. You know, many of us here this morning, maybe you've been at church a long time, you're like, yes, I know it's all about a personal relationship with me and Jesus. Tell me something new. Uh, you know, and, and maybe there's some of us in the room, I think it's important to say this because maybe there's some of us that think, you know, to think like that, to talk like that is pretty individualistic. It's pretty self-centered. But Psalm 116, this psalm wants to say to us, yes, but it's important because that's true. That's an aspect of our faith. It is personal. It is about you and God. And individuals can be passionate about God. Verse 9, you can have a look. It, it says it describes our faith as walking with God. It's a lovely image, isn't it? Go to, on a walk with someone is so intimate and so personal. Um, I quote it because it's relevant, not because I am condoning that you watch it. But there's a, an American satire, a comedy uh, called South Park. Uh, that's you know, very crude and from what I've seen from it, it's, it's very crude and rude. So I'm not endorsing it. But... Um, it has this episode where it cri criticizes uh, Christian pop music, you know, contemporary Christian music. And what it does is these young teenagers try and make a living because they realize Christian music can make a lot of money in some parts of the world. Uh, and by turning kind of vague pop songs that have references in it like Baby, you know, uh, I love you baby, you know, you can think of them. And they replace the word baby with Jesus. Uh, it just, and, you know, they make a buck or two from it. Uh, but the, the point is, is that, you know, they're trying to make a mockery of a Christian's love life for God, in a sense, you know, because it can seem romantic at times. But our love for God isn't romantic or soppy in that sense, but it is deep and passionate. It is incredibly deep and passionate. And while I'm on the topic of contemporary Christian music, you know, something I remember I used to do was I'd get a little bit cranky when our worship music has a lot of I and me in it. And I think, oh, that's just sentimental, you know. It, it's not really helpful when we're all gathered together in a public place, things like that, thinking I was on some theological high ground. But actually, Psalm 116 would say, no, there's a place for I and me and him. There's a place for passion with God. And you might be asking, well, why would an individual be passionate about God? It's, be it's because those individuals understand that God is compassionate for them. Individuals are passionate about God because God is passionate for them. Jesus isn't just the saviour of the world. He's the saviour of individuals in the world. He's the saviour of you and for me. God is compassionate for you. God has compassionate for you and for whatever your situation is. Now, that's important to say as well, you know, this psalm obviously talks about a near-death experience. But even from the earliest times, this psalm would have been used as an expression for all sorts of grief and affliction. 
And it gives us, doesn't it, words for our manifold and varied anguishes and griefs and distress. You know, I think it's exciting to think we're a part of the biggest story in history. We're a part of God's story and we get to play our little part in it. But this psalm reminds us, actually, in some ways, you're at the center of that story. That God cares about you. He cares about you, the mum, and all the things you've got to do. And all the things on your mind. He cares about you, the dad, as well, and you trying to balance work and life. He cares about you, the single person, especially in this kind of crazy, busy, and lonely world at the moment. He cares about you. He cares about you, the young person in this world you're growing up in that just seems like chaos. He cares about you, the elderly person who's trying to figure out whether you've got enough money for retirement or how you're going to spend your time in retirement, how your health is. God cares about you and your situation. He has compassion for you and your situation. And knowing that God cares for you and your life will actually transform how you go to God. That's something this psalm uh, teaches us. Did you notice how the psalmist prayed in his affliction? In that first part, he kind of reflects on his affliction. He reflects on how he went to God. And we notice he prayed with a cry in verse 1. A cry. Or that can be like pleading. It's actually uh, like you know going before a court and pleading your case in many sense. And in verse 4, we have this simple exclamation, Lord, save me. God doesn't need sophisticated, well-organized, emotionally balanced people to come to him. God just needs you as you are. Um, I can share this story because he's away on holidays at the moment and you won't go up to him and ask him what it's about later. But um, recently, Something happened at work that I was quite upset about, quite, made me quite anxious. I was a little bit angry about it. And, um, you know, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that working for a church isn't always peachy. But uh, this thing happened and I tried to calm myself down. Uh, I, I, tried, I practiced all my little things. You know, I tried going for a walk. I tried focusing on my work. I tried distracting myself. I've actually got on my wall printed up seven steps for a successful conflict conversation. You know, I started going through them. I just couldn't focus. I was that kind of emotional about it. And it was very difficult. And I thought, you know what? I think my boss is compassionate for me. I think he cares. So I'm just going to go in there. And so I walked into that room and I said, I'm just going to blow off some steam. And I just blew off some steam. And he had it. He had a red-faced mat. He had a few tears. He had emotional words, you know. And I, I got to tell you, it wasn't about him. It wasn't at him. He's a great boss. He's a compassionate boss. And, but my encouragement wouldn't be to go to your boss like that. But you can go to Jesus like that. You can always go to Jesus like that because he cares for you. He's compassionate about you. It's personal. God's compassion for you is personal. Uh, but the second thing we see in this passage, uh, and it relates to that, is that God's compassion is for the helpless. It's for the people who don't have it all together. For the people who can't work it out for themselves. God's compassion is for the helpless. Um, most obviously in this passage, um, this God's compassion is, is for the helpless, as we see that this person is overcome by death and everything that means. Verse 3 says, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome. 
by distress and sorrow. Death is a curse for which there is no elixir, of course. I often think, you know, in our North Shore little bubble, we forget that sometimes. You'd be forgiven for forgetting that. Um, You know, I was thinking about our experience of COVID, and one of the things that was predicted about how COVID-19 would affect the West is that we would finally learn that we're not in control of our lives. That was something that was predicted. I think living in New South Wales, in Sydney and Australia, you know, actually, that's a lesson we haven't really learned. We're going about lives, our lives, in the ways that we have. I mean, a few things have changed, sure, but in many ways, to some extent, you know, we've been very little affected and we'll go away from thinking we're still in control. I went online to have a look at the graph, you know, um, with the WHO, and you'll see the graph in New South Wales, you know, is going down at the moment. But as I zoomed out, and as I looked at the graph on the whole world, it's actually increasing. You know that? The world is still struggling with this. We're up to a million deaths globally just recently. Hundreds of thousands of them are in the West. Like death is this something we are helpless to overcome. We've made it to the moon and back. We've achieved many things as humans, but death we cannot overcome. And we might think, you know, well, that's serious for us, but God, you know, to him it's not much, right? Death's just the passing into another life or, you know, God's pretty otherworldly. It doesn't really affect him. Have a look at verse 15. It says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Precious in the sight of the Lord is your death. The word means weighty, costly, hard, heavy to God is the idea of death. See, death wasn't a part of God's design for the world. And God doesn't have to be touched by it. In a sense, it's our enemy. It's not his enemy. It can't touch him. But God does feel it. He is affected by it. He finds it grievous, death. And his compassion is such that he desires to save people from it. This psalm, I mentioned it was a psalm that would have been sung at Passover, where the Israelites remembered their escape from death in Egypt. Uh, Jesus would have sung this psalm the night of his betrayal, the night before his death. And so it's, it's his psalm. It's about him. And his compassion is such that actually God in the person of Jesus experiences death. He takes on death. He suffers with us in death. He becomes helpless to help us. There's another side to this, or even a, a deeper depth to this, and that is, you know, I think we personally can understand compassion for people who are trying really hard but just can't make it on their own. You know, that's why we like the underdog, you know, is because they're, they're still trying. Uh, but we don't have much compassion for the sore loser or for the person who gets themselves into trouble. Have a look at verse 6. It says here, The Lord protects the unwary. That word simply means the simple. The Lord protects the simple. He protects the people. Literally, the root of that word is roomy. The people who have a lot of room upstairs. You know, the people who get themselves into trouble. God protects those people too. That's how far his compassion stretches. And this gives us a bit of a 
insight into God's compassion for us. And it actually also changes us, changes how we approach God again, changes how we'll pray if God is compassionate for the helpless. Paul E. Miller has written a wonderful book on prayer. It's called A Praying Life. I highly recommend it to you, especially as we think about praying big prayers shaped by the gospel as a church. But he says this about becoming helpless. He says, God wants us to come to him empty-handed, weary and heavy laden. Instinctively, we want to get rid of our helplessness before we come to God. But he says, think of all the people in the Gospels who come to Jesus and think about how they come. The Samaritan woman has no water. The official has no health. The crippled man uh, has no one to help him. The crowds have no bread. The blind man has no sight. Lazarus has no life. He says, we receive Jesus when we were weak and that is how we follow him. We forget that helplessness is how the Christian life works. Strong Christians, he says, do pray more, but they pray more because they realize how weak they are. They don't try to hide it from themselves. Weakness is the channel that allows them to access grace. Weakness is the channel that allows God's power and his work into our lives. The very thing we're allergic to, helplessness, is what enables God to be powerful in our lives, to be compassionate in our lives. And so that, that's going to change how we pray to God. Not only do we come to Him just as we are, just with simple prayers, but have a look at verse 10 and 11, look at how the psalmist prays, prays. He says, I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. You hear that? In his moment of darkness, he just told God, I'm, just, I'm greatly afflicted. He didn't have any other... Words. He just said, I'm helpless. He came to God empty-handed. But in that moment as well, he can say, I trusted in the Lord when I said I'm helpless. Because he knows that God helps the helpless. That's what God's in the business of doing. You know, Christians realize that all they need to come to God, the only prerequisite of coming to God, is not independence, it's not trying hard, it's nothing. It's emptiness. It's helplessness. It's dependence. Finally, we see that God's wholehearted compassion for us brings about wholehearted response. God's wholehearted compassion brings about a wholehearted response to Him. Uh, this psalm is a psalm of remembered anguish, but it's also a psalm of remembered thankfulness, of deliverance, of God saving Him. And it's this radical kind of thankfulness. It's almost extreme as you read it. I don't know how you felt, but verses 12 to 9 express this thankfulness. And there's this rhetorical expression at the beginning, verse 12, what shall I render the Lord for all his goodness to me? It's kind of this rhetorical statement. How could I repay God? And we expect the answer to be, well, there's no way you can. It's impossible to repay God. But he's a little bit more nuanced than that, which is interesting. He says, I'll lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to take this drink and drink it, and I'm going to come back to you for more when I, when I need it. It's kind of like you know, asking a friend for 50 bucks, and then when they give it to you, saying thanks, and I know where to come when I need more. That's what it's like. You know, it's not social, social etiquette, isn't it? Normally we'd spread the load around our friends a little bit. 
But actually, this is a way in which we can... It's the way in which you honor a wealthy person, actually. It's the way you honor somebody who's influential. You don't ask them for something small. Or you don't stop going to them. You honor them by going to them because you know how enormous and, and ever-reaching is their wealth and their influence. And so in the same way, we dishonor God when we say thanks to Him and then try and live life our own way. We honor God when we call on Him again and again and again and again and again and again. We start by God's grace, but in order to be thankful and honor Him, actually, and ironically, we go back to Him again and again and again and again and again. He goes on to say in verses 17 to 19, He says, I'll sacrifice a thanks offering. I'll fulfill my vows to the Lord. We don't know exactly what those vows were, um, but obviously it's some kind of service to God, some kind of regular religious service, but also this full life, all of life, wholehearted service to God. And you know, our question this morning is, how do we respond like this? How do we become wholehearted for God? How do we live that kind of life? Well, we could try and beat our wills this morning. You know, Timothy Keller helpfully put, he said, no one has ever been deeply changed by an act of the will. The only thing that can really reforge and change a life at its root is love. You remember the psalmist's opening words? I love the Lord. I love the Lord. What you need is a, an experience of God's love, a relationship where you understand and see God's love, God's compassion for you. We need love. We need to fall in love. The psalmist has an experience, more than that, he has a relationship of countless experiences. But one in particular, where he's been saved from death, that shows him God's compassion for him. The Christian, of course, has the same experience, don't we? Christ's death is, in one sense, our near-death experience. It shows us the future. It shows us our future. Not in a physical sense of how we'll die, but in a spiritual sense of our separation from God. It shows us that future and it says that's your future if you do not call on God, if you don't come to Him helplessly. And in that near-death experience, you realize that God has saved us from that because it's more than our near-death experience. It was actually His death and it was His death with us and for us. And in Jesus' death on the cross, we see that God saved us from something that we were helpless to save ourselves from. And it causes us to say, I love, I love, I love the Lord. What we need is to be reminded of that person that decided there was hope when things didn't look that good, when things looked really bad. We need to know that person who died for us to give us a new life. Our lives will wholeheartedly change when we see the wholehearted compassion of God and His love for us in Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your compassion for us. We thank You for this psalmist who experienced it and we thank You that his story also becomes our story in a million different ways in our lives, but also in that one single life-saving moment where Christ stood where we should be standing. 
died where we should have died so that we might have his new life. So we ask, Lord, that we might see that and we might be changed by that. Amen.